0: Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Richard Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, January 13th, and Saturday, the 15th, feature Riccardo Muti conducting an all Beethoven program. The concert begins with coriolan overture. After that comes Beethoven's Symphonies Numbers 8, and after intermission, the Fifth Symphony. Here are program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Eighth Symphony, a work lasting about 27 minutes. In a life characterized by difficulties with people, work, romance, and more, 1812 may well have been the most difficult year Beethoven ever had. In any case, the toll was great in October Shortly after he finished his Eighth Symphony, Beethoven sank into a serious depression, finding creativity a tiresome effort. Over the next two years, he wrote only the two cello sonatas, Opus 102, and a handful of occasional pieces. The main problem of 1812 involved an unknown woman who has come to be known as the immortal beloved. Conjecture about her identity is one of the favorite games of Beethoven's scholarship— in his Watershed Beethoven biography, Maynard Solomon suggests Amelie Brentano, who was certainly the most plausible. The evidence is slight, essentially little more than the astonishing letter Beethoven wrote on July 6th and 7th, which was discovered among his papers after his death. It's Beethoven's only letter to a woman that uses the informal German do, and in its impassioned, unsparing tone, it tells us much about the composer, if nothing at all, about the woman in question. This wasn't the last time Beethoven would find misery and longing where he sought romance and domestic harmony, but it's the most painful case we have record of, and it certainly helped to convince him that he would remain alone and lonely for life. The diary he began in late 1812 finds him despondent at the failure of his relationships and more determined than ever in his single-minded dedication to music. It also admits thoughts of suicide. Beethoven's Eighth Symphony quickly followed his Seventh, and particularly in light of its predecessors, it was misunderstood from the start. When Beethoven was reminded that the Eighth was less successful than his Seventh, he is said to have replied, That's because it's so much better. Contemporary audiences are seldom the best judges of new music, but Beethoven's latest symphony must have seemed a letdown at the time, for after symphonies of unexpected power and unprecedented length with movements that include thunder and lightning that led directly from one to the other, the eighth is a throwback to an easier time. The novelty of this symphony, however, is that it manages to do new and unusual things, without ever waving the flag of controversy. The first movement, for example, is of modest dimensions, with a compact first theme, its first two quick phrases like a textbook definition of antecedent, consequent, question and answer, structure. The next subject comes upon us without warning, unless two quiet measures of expectant chords have tipped us off. The whole moves like lightning, And when we hit the recapitulation amid thundering triple F timpani with a new singing theme high above the original tune, we can hardly believe we're already home. But just when Beethoven seems about to wrap things up, he launches into a giant epilogue that proves in no uncertain terms just how far we've come from the predictable four-square proportions of the works by Haydn and Mozart. For early 19th century audiences who were just getting used to Beethoven's spacious slow movements, the second movement of the eighth was a puzzle because it's neither slow nor long. It is also, through no fault of its own, nothing like the second movement of Beethoven's seventh symphony, which had been an instant and tremendous hit. The incredible 19th century practice of inserting that beloved slow movement into the eighth symphony says more about the tastes of earlier generations than about any supposed deficiencies in Beethoven's Allegretto. The scherzo that follows isn't a scherzo at all, but a leisurely old-world minuet, giving us all the room and relaxation we missed in the Allegretto. As always, there is a method in Beethoven's madness, though it was often only the madness that got noticed. In the context of the composer's personal sorrows of 1812, it's either astonishing or perfectly predictable, depending on your outlook on human nature, that the finale is one of the funniest pieces of music Beethoven ever wrote. The tone is jovial from the start, a light, rambunctious theme. The first real joke comes at the very end of that theme, when Beethoven tosses out a loud unison, C-sharp an odd exclamation point for an F major sentence. Many moments of wit follow, tiny whispers that answer bold declarations, gaping pauses when you can't help but question what will happen next, places where Beethoven seems to enjoy tugging on the rug beneath our feet. But he saves his best punch line for last, and he has been working up to it all along. When that inappropriate C-sharp returns one last time, as it was destined to do, given the uncontestable logic of Beethoven's wildest schemes, it's no longer a stumbling block in an F-major world, but a gateway to the unlikely key of F-sharp minor. It takes some doing to pull us back to terra firma. The trumpets begin by defiantly hammering away on F-natural, and Beethoven spends the last page's endlessly turning somersaults through F major until memories of any other sounds are banished for good. Program Notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. And now on to Beethoven's Fifth, a work lasting about 36 minutes. This is the symphony that, along with an image of Beethoven agitated and disheveled, has come to represent greatness in music. Perhaps we are speaking only of the very opening seconds, just as we may remember vividly and accurately no more than the Mona Lisa's smile or the first ten words of Hamlet's soliloquy. It's hard to know how so few notes, so plainly strung together, could become so popular. There are certainly those who would argue that this isn't even Beethoven's greatest symphony, just as the Mona Lisa isn't Leonardo's finest painting. Beethoven himself preferred his Eroica to the Fifth Symphony. And yet, it's hardly famous beyond its merits because one can't easily think of another single composition that, in its expressive range and structural power, better represents what music is all about. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has spoken forcefully and directly to many listeners, trained and untrained, over the years. We each listen and understand in our own way. We can probably find ourselves somewhere here among the characters of E.M. Forster's Howard's End. Whether you are like Mrs. Munt and tap surreptitiously when the tunes come, Of course, not so as to disturb the others. Or like Helen, who can see heroes and shipwrecks in the music's flood. Or like Margaret, who can only see the music. Or like Tibby, who is profoundly versed in counterpoint and holds the full score open on his knee. Or like their cousin, Fräulein Mosbach, who remembers all the time that Beethoven is echt Deutsch. Or like Fräulein Mosbach's young man, who can remember nothing but Fräulein Mosbach. In any case, the passion of your life becomes more vivid, and you are bound to admit that such a noise is cheap at two shillings. And that is why we still go to concerts, although two shillings will no longer buy Mrs. Munt's seat, and whether we see shipwrecks or dominant sevenths, we may well agree, while caught up in a captivating performance, that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is the most sublime noise that has ever penetrated into the ear of man." For a while, it was somewhat overshadowed by the Ninth Symphony, which seemed to point the way to the rest of the nineteenth century and embolden generations of composers to think differently of the symphony or of music in general. But the Fifth has never really lost its appeal. Robert Schumann, whose musical predictions have often come true, wrote that, This symphony invariably wields its power over men of every age like those great phenomena of nature. This symphony, too, will be heard in future centuries, nay, as long as music and the world exist. A familiarity that only a handful of pieces in any century earn has largely blunted much of the work's wild power for our ears. And knowledge of the many works that couldn't have been written without this as their example has blinded us to the novelty of Beethoven's boldest strokes, the cross-reference between the famous opening and the fortissimo horn call in the scherzo, the way the scherzo passes directly and dramatically into the finale, and the memory of the scherzo that appears unexpectedly in the finale, all forging the four movements of the symphony into one unified design. There's no way to know what the first audience thought. For one thing, that concert given at the Theater an der Wien on December 22nd, 1808, was so inordinately long even by 19th century standards and jammed with so much important new music that no one could truly have taken it all in. J.F. Reichart, who shared a box with Prince Lobkowitz, later wrote... There we sat from six thirty till ten thirty in the most bitter cold, and found by experience that one might have too much, even of a good thing. Reichart and Lopkowitz stayed till the end, their patience frequently tried not by the music, to which these two brought more understanding than most, but by the performance, which was rough and unsympathetic. Surely some in the audience that night were bowled over by what they heard, though many may well have fidgeted and daydreamed, uncomprehending, or perhaps even bored. Beethoven's was not yet the most popular music ever written, and even as great a figure as Goethe would outlive Beethoven without coming to terms with the one composer who was clearly his equal. As late as 1830, Mendelssohn tried one last time to interest the aging poet in Beethoven's music, enthusiastically playing the first movement of the Fifth Symphony at the piano. But that does not move one, Goethe responded. It is merely astounding, grandiose. Take the celebrated opening, which Beethoven once, in a moment he surely regretted, likened to fate knocking at the door— It is bold and simple, and thus, like many of the mottos of our civilization, susceptible to all manner of popular treatments, none of which can diminish the power of the original. Beethoven writes eight notes, four plus four, the first ta-ta-ta-tum, falling down from G to E-flat, the second from F to D. For all the force of those hammer strokes, we may be surprised that only strings and clarinets play them. Hearing those eight notes and no more, we can't yet say for certain whether this is E-flat major or C minor. As soon as Beethoven continues, we hear that urgent knocking as part of a grim and driven music in C minor. But when the exposition is repeated and we start over from the top with E-flat major chords still ringing in our ears, those same ta-ta-ta-tum patterns sound like they belong to E-flat major. That ambiguity and tension are at the heart of this furious music, just as the struggle to break from C minor, where this movement settles, into the brilliance of C major, and it will carry us to the end of the symphony. If one understands and remembers those four measures, much of what happens during the next thirty-odd minutes will seem both familiar and logical. We can hear fate knocking at the door of nearly every measure of the first movement, The forceful horn call that introduces the second theme, for example, mimics both the rhythm and the shape of the symphony's opening. We can also notice the similarity to the beginning of the fourth piano concerto, and in fact, ideas for both works can be found in the same sketchbooks, those rich hunting grounds where brilliance often emerges in flashes from a disarray matched only by the notorious condition of the composer's lodgings. Although the first movement is launched with the energy and urgency of those first notes, its progress is stalled periodically by echoes of the two long-held notes in the first bars. In the recapitulation, a tiny but enormously expressive oboe cadenza completely freezes the action. The extensive coda is particularly satisfying, not because it effectively concludes a dramatic and powerful movement, but because it uncovers still new depths of drama and power at a point when that seems unthinkable. The andante con moto is a distant relative of the theme and variations that often turn up as slow movements in classical symphonies. But unlike the conventional type, it presents two different themes, varies them separately, and then trails off into a free improvisation that covers a wide range of thoughts, each springing almost spontaneously from the last. The sequence of events is so unpredictable and the meditative tone so seductive that in the least assertive movement of the symphony, Beethoven commands our attention to the final sentence. Beethoven was the first to notice his scherzo's resemblance to the opening of the finale of Mozart's great G minor symphony. He even wrote out Mozart's first measures on a page of sketches for this music, but while the effect there is decisive and triumphant, here it is clouded with half-uttered questions. Beethoven begins with furtive music inching forward in the low strings, then stumbling on the horns who let loose their own rendition of Fate at the Door. At some point, when Beethoven realized that the scherzo was part of a bigger scheme, he decided to leave it unfinished and move directly through one of the most famous passages in music, slowly building intention and drama over the ominous, quiet pounding of the timpani to an explosion of brilliant C major. Composers have struggled ever since to match the effect, not just of binding movements together—that much has been successfully copied—but of emerging so much dramatically from darkness to light. The sketchbooks tell us that these 50 measures cost Beethoven considerable effort, and most surprisingly, that they weren't even part of the original plan. Berlioz thought this transition so stunning that it would be impossible to surpass it in what follows. Beethoven, perfectly understanding the challenge and also that of sustaining the victory of C major once it has been achieved, adds trombones used in symphonic music for the first time, the piccolo, and the contrabassoon to the first burst of C major and moves forward towards his final stroke of genius. That moment comes amidst general rejoicing when the ghost of the scherzo quietly appears, at once disrupting C major with unexpected memories of C minor and leaving everyone temporarily hushed and shaken. Beethoven quickly restores order and the music begins again as if nothing has happened. But Beethoven still finds it necessary to end with 54 measures of the purest C major to resolve any lingering doubts and to remind us of the conquest, not the struggle. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 5. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.